0: Uh, But let's turn to Nehemiah 5. We're going to continue our series in Nehemiah 5 together. And um, I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. Nehemiah 5, the Word of God reads, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews, Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard the outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have, brought, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what are you doing? What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised, I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed the heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people let's pray and then let's get into the sermon father we thank you so much for your word we thank you for the ways that you've been speaking through us through the book of nehemiah we pray that you will continue to do so we want to be a church that's blessed by you we want to be a church where you love dwelling and so god teach us how to be those people and to take our responsibility as members of this church seriously to the to the point where we want your blessings and uh, we hunger for it all the time. God, make us that church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, it's been a while since I preached from Nehemiah because of Easter and then because of the holiday. So what I'd like to do right before I begin is I kind of wanted to recap what we've been studying about Nehemiah so far so that we remember the story. And then secondly, I kind of wanted to recap some of the themes that we've kind of covered up until now, and then I'll kind of continue into uh, Nehemiah 5. It's a very simple. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah was one book. Uh, They were exiled, the the people of God, the Jews were exiled to um, Babylon, but God is now calling his people back to Jerusalem. And so God calls them out of exile in Ezra and in Nehemiah to come and to rebuild their city, to become a nation once again, to rebuild their city of Jerusalem. And that's exactly what the book of Nehemiah is about. And so what we read is the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, not only to become a nation, but to become God's people. People who will truly be salt and light to this world and show off to this world how awesome God truly is. Uh, To revisit some of the themes, we said in chapter one that God has called all of us to be ministers and God wants to use all of our lives to show off how amazing God is. In chapter two, we said that um, each one of us has been given an eternal purpose by God. And if we take that seriously enough, God can actually use our lives powerfully to make an eternal impact in our world through the lives that we have here on earth. Um, And then in chapter three, we said that that eternal purpose revolves around service, serving God and serving his people. And then in chapter four, we learned that those who actually choose to live for their eternal purpose uh, will be persecuted, will come under attack, just like the people of God were. And so we learned how to handle The attacks of the evil one so we get to chapter five today and we see that the people of god are under attack once again but by a different type of enemy they're being attacked internally and what we find out in our passage today is that hearts among the jews have become corrupted right and people are no longer living according to the values of the kingdom but now what they're doing is they're choosing simply to operate their lives how by the desires of their hearts You know, and our desires of our hearts. You know, yeah. Some of them. Sometimes it's awesome. Sometimes they're great and beautiful. But a lot of times they're really deeply sinful. And that's what we're going to discover in our passage today. And this is how we're going to attack Nehemiah 5 today. I'm basically going to retell the story just in case you didn't quite get it, so that you know exactly what's going on and what the issues actually are. And then I'm going to end our message today with three applications. Okay. So that's what we're going to do. Um, at the beginning of this chapter, in verses one to five, we kind of learned the situation that's going on. The Jewish people. They. Most of them were farmers. Verse. Okay, so most of them made a living every single day working the land, you know, selling their crops so that they can have enough to eat at home and to make some money for the future and but the thing is the Jewish people because now the Jerusalem walls had to be rebuilt a lot of them had to give up their farms so that they can build walls in the city and many of them were happy to do so and they were totally fine with it. But the challenge was this, the moment that they moved to the city outside of their farms now they had no money to buy food. How are they gonna eat? How are they gonna survive? How are they gonna support their family? who who might be back at home on the farm. And so what they decided to do was they decided to allow other people to work the land for them so they could sell their crops and make income. That's the mortgage that's referred to in verse three here. But the thing is what we also discover is that the king's taxes for the land that they were working still needed to be paid but once again there was an income situation, there was an income problem, so they need to make more money. But the problem is a lot of times they didn't have the money to pay the king's taxes. They barely made enough even to put food on the table. And so what ended up happening is a lot of times they had to sell their children to other people for money and their children became enslaved for payment. Now, that's how bad the situation was. Honestly, I have two children. I can't imagine getting to the point in life where I have to sell my children into slavery in order for us to eat and survive. That's just a horrific, horrific situation. And so can you imagine that just Absolutely horrific, and, and if I didn't mention it, there was also famine going on as well. So the bottom line was, financially things were, weren't just tough for people, they were dire. It was a very bad situation, um, and, and the whole situation in the country was horrific because of the famine that was going on. And that's why in the first verse, it says that there was a great outcry, not just an outcry, but a great outcry from the people and their wives. Right? Once again, men, we always complain about everything, but you know that the situation is serious once the women start complaining, right? So that's what's happening here. It's huge. But the outcry really is really interesting. The outcry wasn't against the poverty or it wasn't against the famine. The outcry was directed at the rich Jews, right? And the reason why is because these rich Jews who had a lot of money decided, oh my goodness, what a great opportunity for us to get really rich, off the blood and sweat and families of our fellow brothers and sisters who we go to the same church with, right? And so they lent out money at huge interest rates and if the people couldn't pay, there was more enslavement and greater debt. This is the situation. And so all of a sudden Nehemiah finds out that this is all going on and he becomes furious in verse 6. And he was furious for two reasons. And here's the first reason. The first reason why Nehemiah is furious is because everything that these rich Jews were doing absolutely violated the laws of Moses. Okay, three times in the Old Testament law, it is specifically stated extremely clearly that Jews are never to charge interest to other Jews, whether it's in borrowing money, fields, lands, or anything. Exodus 22, Leviticus 25, but here we're gonna put up Deuteronomy 23, right? Just look at these words here, Deuteronomy 23, 19 to 20. It says, do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite. And here's the reason why so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess, right? Do you see this verse? It's a huge verse. Not only is it telling these people that it, what they're doing violates God's laws um, when you charge interest to a fellow brother or sisters, but it says that if you do, that God has every right to withhold his blessings from what we're trying to do here, which is trying to build this new city in the new land that we just got, right? So by violating this law, Nehemiah is absolutely furious. And he's furious not only because these rich Jews violated the law of God, but because they have absolutely no compassion, right? And this is you know, I'm, this is the big one here. You know, it's really fascinating. These rich Jews, they don't mind charging interest to starving people. It's horrific. They don't mind obtaining a few more slaves for their own kingdom at the expense of breaking up other families and at the expense of breaking up churches. I'm going to call them churches, right, or the church itself. They don't mind getting rich at the expense of their neighbor. But what made it completely worse and what made Nehemiah like truly furious was by doing so, it invited the curse of God upon their nation. And that's huge right this verse says that you are not to charge interest so that the lord god will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess and they just got this new land and they're trying to possess it and so they want the blessing if there's anything you need when you're trying to enter into a new land and to become the nation of god it is the blessings it is the protection it is the provision of god himself he's got to show up he's got to be there but by doing so, by charging interest, they are basically saying, we don't care. We don't need it. We don't want it. We don't need you, God, to be your people. We just want what we want. You know, these guys, they're just—they're char- they're just, they're being attacked by outsiders. We learned that in the previous chapter. They're struggling just to survive. People are starving. And then all of a sudden, these rich Jews act in a way that are standing directly in the way of God blessing his people and that was the tipping point for for nehemiah so he becomes absolutely furious but secondly he was furious because in his heart and in his mind and maybe in us as well he just couldn't fathom how his jewish brothers these rich jewish brothers could take advantage of other people within the church right especially because they're starving you know the situation is so dire how could they be okay with deepening their pockets at the expense of seeing their brothers and sisters go hungry and die and become slaves once again. I mean, how can a follower of God be okay with that? And the reason why he's he's furious is because of the injustice, right? And, and the thing is, you have to understand the history a little bit, which we probably didn't explain in the past, but you have to understand the history of what these Jews had to go through in order to get to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, for you to understand why he's so furious. you know, Verses eight and nine, I'm gonna read this. It says, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they couldn't find anything to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach? our Gentile enemies. And what he's saying in these verses is huge. He's saying, look, as a nation on our way to Jerusalem, we visited all these other cities in the Gentile country to literally go and buy back the Jews from those cities so that we could all together as one nation build this city together. We literally spent millions of dollars in 2022 value money, millions of dollars buying back these Jews so we could rebuild this city together. But look at now, look now at what your we're doing, right? You are enslaving the people that we literally just spent millions of dollars freeing from slavery. Does that make any sense to you? And the reason why we did so, and the reason why we generously spent all this money and show these Gentile people all this generous money is so that we could show them how amazing and beautiful, generous, and gracious our God really is. This is what we want to show to these Gentile nations, but when you start to enslave the people that we just freed, what kind of picture are you painting about our God? What kind of message are you really sending to these Gentile nations about what we really value and who we're really all about? It really kind of highlights that how we live as Christians today really is on display for the whole world to see, isn't it? right? So Nehemiah commands them to return everything that they've taken, because this is not what the people of God do. And so these guys promise to return everything, but does he believe them? No, he doesn't. He says, okay, I know you guys said yes, but I'm going to get all you guys together publicly in front of everybody. I'm going to make you guys take an oath in front of everybody. And then he did. But then does he still trust them? No, he doesn't, because he knows people. And so he says, you know, just in case, I know you guys said you would, but I'm going to actually curse you if you don't do this. I didn't, I didn't realize they had the power to do stuff like this. But hey, I'm going to curse you guys, and I'm going to make sure that all your families and you guys are all cursed if you don't follow this. So publicly, we're going to do all that too. And that's what they did. And, they, and then verse 13 says that they all said amen, and they did exactly what was promised, which is awesome. Okay, so that's the story. Is it a positive story? Is it a great story? I don't know. It's a rough story. Poverty, starvation, famine, gouging, curses, slavery, distrust, right? It's a pretty huge story. But what can we learn from it thousands of years later? And if there's one thing that I just want to highlight, this is what I want to highlight. It's the verse from Deuteronomy. The reason what what made Nehemiah so furious at his people wasn't just that there was injustice being carried out. But it was that man i don't understand how you guys can live in such a way that would prevent the blessings of god to be upon us as a church that's what drove everything that they did and that's kind of like the theme of what i'd like to share with you today there are three lessons i think that we can learn from here and i'm going to state them in the positive three applications that we can actually uh, live out within our lives so that we can become a church that has the blessings of god upon us or at least prevents us from not having the blessings of God be with us. Okay? Is that too many negatives? Anyway, number one, confront injustice before you. People all around us are being mistreated, are being cheated, and are being abused. Whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's in society, or even here, at church, unfortunately, right? You know, when Nehemiah found out what was happening in his own backyard, he became furious. He absolutely did. And he did something about it. And I think that's exactly what believers should be doing. That's exactly what salt and light should be doing. We should be uh, introducing the justice of God into society. I think that's something that we as a church really need to start doing. Now, the thing is, you know, how do we do that, Eddie Bang? Well, I I don't recommend doing exactly what Nehemiah did. I think the way Nehemiah went about doing it is only can only be done if you're in a position of authority, if you're in a position of power, and most of us may not be in those positions. So, this is what I would recommend doing. How do we how do we go about confronting justice? This is injustice. This is what I would say. Number one, uh, do your due diligence. Right? Find out what is what's exactly going on. Ask some questions. See why these injustices are happening. Do your research. And then secondly, what I what I would invite you to do is as you come to a better understanding, continually bring these things before God. Pray about it, pray through it, and then ask God for wisdom. Right? James says we need to ask for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. How can I tackle this? How can I confront this? Who am I should I talk to? What is the process? Right? What can I do? And ask God for wisdom and then take action in the wisest steps possible okay that's a that's what i would do but one thing i really kind of want to say is this don't allow injustices to continue okay when we hear stuff like that in the church especially within the immigrant church we kind of get a little bit uncomfortable and the reason why is because uh, unfortunately this is something that we're probably some of only some of us might be really really familiar with right and the reason is because we just have not seen it practiced that much in the church in the past 20, 30 years, maybe within our church experience, which I think is very, very sad. Confronting injustice, whether it's inside the church or outside the church, uh, but especially inside the church, is something that I think the immigrant church has unfortunately neglected. And as a result, so many inside the church have been hurt and continue to remain victims of injustice as a result. You know, I really believe that this is one area that has to change in the church today, in 2022. I really believe this is one area of the church that must be elevated if the local church is to be salt and light in the world today. I mean, if we want people to know God, if we want people to experience God, if we truly want them to know and experience the pursuing love of God for them, if we truly want them to know and experience the liberating power of the gospel, then I believe it begins today, in today's world, I believe it begins when they have an encounter with the embodiment of love, power, and justice through his people, right? And it begins with us. Why? Because when they encounter that through us, we are showing victims and their oppressors how much they are truly loved and valued by God himself, right? If there's one thing I want you to do, please don't misunderstand the point. I, never, I know whenever churches talk about confronting injustice, all of a sudden it becomes political, or it becomes some kind of political issue. It's not, it's not simply a cause that we need to engage ourselves in. It is not so that we can just do the right thing. But confronting injustice really is fighting on behalf of those who are powerless to fight on behalf of themselves, which is what's happening within our passage today. We do it out of love. We do it out of love for God's truth, out of a desire to reflect his character in this world and a desire to love his people just as he would. Those who are trapped, entrapped in their situations and those who are enslaved in their sins that's exactly what God did for us when he saw us helpless and powerless against the sin that so powerfully enslaved each one of us. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to free us from that, right? That's the gospel. And now he's trying to call us, and he's calling us to do exactly the same thing. I wanted to share an example with you today of uh, confronting injustice that might illustrate it or might inspire you to do so. But as I thought about it, Uh, more deeply I kind of thought that an apology was more appropriate you know I know many people in the church or in the past I should say have been abused and hurt by the church and hurt by church leaders in the past and you may have felt like there was no one who was willing to fight on your behalf especially when you felt helpless in your suffering and to make things worse you might have even been convinced that abuse was the accepted and promoted culture of the church because many of our leaders seem to be practicing it and no one was fighting against it and i want if, if that's you i want to say that i'm truly sorry that we did that to you right i'm sorry that the church did that to you i'm sorry that we as church leaders that to you i'm truly sorry that those practices tainted and marred what should have been an amazing experience with the people of god an amazing experience that was designed to reflect the good and perfect love of our father for you right what we did was wrong and i am sorry that, that happened. Now, you know, the thing is, I can't control what happens outside of FLM or in this world, but as long as I'm the leader here, I will do all that I can to make sure that we conduct church and operate church and that my leaders operate in such a way that we do everything that we can to reflect the character of Christ the best that we can. Right? And if anything falls out of line, you have to let me know. If I fall out of line, you have to let me know. And I And please, always, you have a direct line to my phone, to my email, to everything. I I just wanna reflect the character of Christ because I believe that by reflecting the character of Christ, we have the best chance to inviting the presence of God and here with us and for us to grow together and to be the church that we were always meant to be. So, um, and if you guys, if there's anyone watching at home and maybe you're just listening or maybe you're just watching, you know, if you come to FLM or not, it's okay. That's not the goal. The goal is for you to come back to Christ. And if you ever need help doing that, please contact me. I'll, I'll do everything I can to get you back on track with God, whether you end up coming to FLM or not. Um, with all that said, uh, let's, let's use our lives to confront injustice, right? Um, one thing I wanna say really quick before we move on, is confronting injustice easy? No it's not. Uh, things might get worse as a result of you bringing this up, you know, we might even get persecuted for it, but we confront injustice uh, ultimately because we just want to please God, and ultimately because we want to reflect his character in this world, right, and ultimately it's because we trust in his justice, we trust in his character and not in ours, and therefore we will always leave the results up to him. Regardless of how things turn out today when we confront injustice, God will always be the ultimate vindicator. He will always bring about his justice. All sin will one day be destroyed. All evil will be destroyed and punished. And one day his true justice will reign. So while we have these lives here on earth, let's use them to reflect his justice and his character in our society and especially within our church today. Number two, let's be compassionate. Um, You know, a Christian's response to suffering poverty, famine, and slavery in our world today, especially of our own people, should be compassion. Okay? If you saw that your grandfather was starving or if you saw that your kids were starving, the last thing that you're going to think about is, how can I profit off of my daughter's starvation? Right? That's no one thinks like that. Well, they did. And that's how demented they were, and that, that's why what they were doing is so evil on so many levels. Compassion, which is a form of love, means to enter sympathetically into people's pain, leading us to action, which alleviates that suffering. Right? So it's heart plus action. It's not just heart, that's empathy or sympathy but it's heart plus action. That's compassion. And compassion should be the trademark of what a Christian is. You know, if you just look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is like, hey, the, good's the good neighbor, the loving neighbor, is the one that took action. You know, uh, the, I don't, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but there were there, there was a guy who was suffering, but there were pastors, there were priests, you know, and all these people, they saw the suffering guy but passed them by and this guy's enemy comes along and loves him and cares for him and restores him. And Jesus says, the true neighbor is the one who actually took action and cared. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a pastor. It doesn't even matter if you call yourself a Christian. It doesn't matter if you even go to church. If you don't have actions that show the character and love of God towards your brothers and sisters in this world. Mm, are you really a believer? Right? That's what he's saying. And I think compassion must be what characterizes the people of God today if we are to be salt and light, and if we are to be people that invite the blessings and the presence of God within our church. You know, uh, if you guys don't know, I have a lot of spinal issues. I have a, a lot of spinal issues. And the first time I, my spine, uh, I got into a spinal accident about 20 years ago in Chicago. I was bedridden in the hospital for about two weeks, and then for about one and a half to two months back at home. And it was the most lonely and depressing time for me. I don't, know if, I don't know if you've ever been injured significantly, but it's just very lonely being stuck in a bed for two months. Okay, but I, I literally, this is my chance to brag about my church. I went to the best church in the world back then, and. Um, You know, people would come over every day after work. People would come over every day after school. There was one guy who just to play games, just to eat with me, just to watch TV with me, and that's it. You know, one guy even took vacation time so that he could hang out at my house all day, right? That's huge. You only get two weeks in America. It's not like Australia where you get four weeks. And he took one of his two weeks vacation time just to hang out with me. And I felt so loved, I felt so valued, and that was absolutely amazing. Can you imagine going to a church where you just knew that if anything happened to you, you were confident that someone was gonna pray for you, care for you, and try to just be with you no matter what was going on within your life? I mean, that would be a church that I want to commit myself too. Are we there yet? Kind of. There are some great leaders that we have. There's some great people we have in their church. But I don't know if that's what really people think about when they think about FLM. They don't think about that church that really cares for others that well. But I'd love for us to move in that direction. Because if there's one thing that I learned is this. Compassion breeds compassion. You know, the moment you experience something like that, that's when, you, that's when all of a sudden you get awakened to how much you don't do that for other people and you want to do it for other people. And so because of that experience, I've learned, wow. Church can be like that. I can be like that. And hopefully that's something I can bring more to the table. And hopefully that's something we can all bring to the table. Don't wait for someone to be compassionate to you first. But let's keep an eye out for our brothers and sisters here. But in order for that to happen, we kind of need to be committed to the church, don't we? And I'm not talking about the organization of the church. I'm talking about the people in our church. Start with your CG. Just love them. Like crazy, but if there's anything I can point out, and this is kind of a point I really want to get to as your, your spiritual leader is. <sighs> um, there are a lot of groups in our church. There's married people who only stick to married people. There are single workers who only hang out with single workers. There are like uni students, and you guys don't hang out as uni students. 18 year olds hang out with 18 year olds, 19 year olds hang out with 19 year olds, 20 year olds only hang out with 20 year olds. It's like, there's so much division And I get it, and there's clicks. I totally accept that. I'm not gonna try to break up clicks. But the thing is this: if we really want to become a church that grows together and invites the presence of God, and you know, in our church, then we got to be one. And all I'm saying is, we created CGs the way that we did, all mixed up, so that you can you can hang with your friends. I don't. I'm not saying. I'm not trying to break up a click. But what I am saying is, if you're not spending any of your energy loving people outside of your circles intentionally, I don't think it's gonna happen. I don't think we're ever gonna come together. But I want us to come together. That's the only way we can move forward. So can you intentionally make plans to not hang out with your group so that you can love your brother and sister more intentionally? Cool, that's all I'm asking you to do. That's part of compassion, okay? Let's do that. Uh, Of course, there are so many other ways. You know, and the thing is this, and the whole point where I say this is this. As a pastor, like, my phone calls and my texts, half, 90% of them are people who are in trouble, okay? That's just the nature of my job. No one calls or texts me to say, hey, I just want to tell you, I'm having a great day, Eddie. No one ever does that. But they always call with complaints or something's wrong or they need help. And can I just tell you, there are people in our ministry that truly need compassion. There are people who are in our ministry that are hurting around you, but we'll never know it, and they'll never tell you. But maybe if you just reach out, and love them, and just choose to love them. Whether you know them, whether you think they deserve it or not, makes no difference. Wow, you know, there might be some walls that are torn down and there might be some unity happening. And that's all I'm trying to say. Okay, let's practice compassion. Oh, where am I? Okay, thirdly, let's be generous. I know, time's moving. And what I mean by generous is this, let's use our wealth to bless one another. Okay? And when I say wealth, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all of us. All of us are rich. I know, like, Eddie, I have no money in the bank. Da, da, da. It's okay, you're rich. You're richer than 90% of the people who walk on this earth. You are rich. Okay, You have wealth. Okay, uh, You may not be as rich as the person sitting in front of you or behind you, but you are rich, and that makes you you're rich. Okay, And so the calling that God has placed upon each one of our lives is to have this radical other-centeredness about us so that um, which compassion allows us to exercise, so that we can be ready to give generously, okay? We need to be ready to give generously. In our passage today, there, were, there, there was a famine, people were starving. The end of the passage, it reads a little awkwardly, but basically this is what Nehemiah was saying. Nehemiah was saying, look, as the spiritual leader and as a leader of this nation, I was given all of this wealth, I was given all of this food, but I took none of it for myself. But seeing the people that people were starving in my country or in my church, I decided to invite all those people over every single day for every single meal so that I could feed them. That's all. That's what it's saying. Every single day, 150 people for every meal sat at his table and he fed them with all the things that he was given. That's all he's saying. Okay. So he gave whatever he was given and he fed his people with it and he gave it to his people. Um, I knew this one pastor who wasn't that rich, but every single night he decided to invite church people street people whoever was willing to come to his you know dinner table and he invited and he just fed them for free and there he would just love them and then even then i remember seeing him there, there's, there are people be like, hey, that's a really cool thing you have there. And he's like, oh, do you want it? Why don't you just take it? And he would just give stuff. He would give stuff like blankets. He would give stuff like clothes. He would just give things away that people wanted. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And the thing is, he wasn't even that rich. And so I was like, dude, how do you do that even though you don't have that much? You still even give away even though you don't have much to give away. And what he said was something that I'll never forget. And this is what he said. He said, there's a di- Eddie, there's a difference between being poor and having a poverty mentality. Right? There's a difference between being poor and having poverty. Rich people can have a poverty mentality, right? But there's a difference between being poor and having a poverty mentality. Is it this, if you're poor, you simply don't have much. But it doesn't matter because you can still be generous because that's who you are. But for those who have a poverty mentality, no matter how much you have, you just can never be generous because you never think you have enough. But, when, but you can be actually really poor, but if you understand the father that you serve and how rich and generous he is in his nature towards all of his children, then you never have to worry about never having enough. People who are generous are convinced that they that their God is rich and generous and will always take care of his children. Therefore, we're always liberated. We're always in this liberation state to give generously to all who need it around us, right? And so I I believe that's who we need to be. And when your brothers and sisters, especially within the church, know that your generosity is coming from a heart that's practicing and trusting in God, that kind of stuff changes your life. When I was a youth pastor back in Chicago, um, I had this one uni student I just graduated. He worked one whole year. He wasn't rich whatsoever. He worked one whole year and worked really, really hard, blue collar job to save up for this absolutely junk of a car. It was the worst thing in the world. It had holes and rusted holes in the side. There were like holes in the upholstery. It smelled like the funky car smell that you would never buy, but only poor people buy. He bought that car, but he was so proud of it, loved it. You could hear him coming to church from like 500 meters away. <laughs> this is him. Anyway, during that time, I was a poor single guy too, and I had come across some really difficult financial, uh, I, was during, I had a financial crisis during that time. I remember, anyway, the next morning I received this uh, envelope uh, in the mail, you know, he just hand-delivered it the night before. I opened up this envelope and the card says something like, I just thought, if you need help, here you go. And inside that envelope was a set of keys to his car. Right Now, I I didn't get, hardly. I'm not going to sell that, you can't even get anything for that car, it's a piece of junk. But the whole point was, he was willing to give up his most precious possession to help me out as a brother. Till this day, I don't hold anything back from him. No matter what he asked me for, I just say yes. Because at that time, he was willing to give his most precious possession to me in order to help me out. That kind of stuff changes you. And that's what church should be about. You know what I'm saying? That's what church community should be about. But more importantly, because of that one experience, once again, generosity breeds generosity. Uh, My hope and prayer is that I can have that kind of same heart towards anyone who goes to my church as well. I'm not as generous as he is, but because I've seen it, I wanna go in that way. And I know, and I, and I saw exactly how it can go. And so I hope we can all be like that today. Confront injustice, be compassionate, be generous. Those reflect the character of Christ and are desperately needed within our church today and in our world today. But to close, I just kind of want to reemphasize one thing. Um, what all of us need to understand is that God is a loving father, right? He just loves us to death. And as a loving father, All he wants to give us is good and perfect gifts. He wants to bless us and to bless our church in such a way so that this this place, your lives, can be the place where he loves to dwell. That's it, right? That's what he wants. He saved us so that he could dwell within our hearts. He planted this church so that we as a ministry could have his presence all the time so that he could be here But it's abundantly clear all throughout Scripture that God not only gives instruction on how to live, but he also gives us warnings on how not to live. And to to, to summon all up, he's basically saying, look, just reflect the character of my son Jesus. Know who I am and operate your lives in such a way that reflects my character, that you trust in me with all that you have. If it took the death of my son to destroy this sin, and to confront these injustices in this world, then isn't that what you are to reflect with your life? Right, When those who are suffering and those who are powerless and helpless in their situations are there right in front of your eyes, I sent my son to die for you, reflect his character and be compassionate and go and do something about it. And if you truly understand my heart and all that I am, And if you understand your calling, your eternal purpose, then be generous with who I am, knowing that I am backing you so that you can confront injustices, be compassionate generously with your life. So that, why? So that he can dwell with us and so that people can truly see how awesome and beautiful and generous and gracious our God is through our lives. That's it. Is Christianity all about worship, reading your Bible, and praying? No. But passages like Nehemiah 5 teach us that loving your neighbor is just as important. How you love your neighbor is just as important as how much you truly love the Lord, right? That's why it's proof of how much you love the Lord. I pray in my prayer. Is, is very simple. I want our church and our ministry to be a place where God loves to dwell. I want your life to be a person. When God sees you, oh man, he's so proud. He's so excited because he dwells in your heart actively, alive, interacting with you. He loves being there. That's all I want. And I hope that's what you want too. Right? So let's love God with all that we have. But let's sure let's make sure that we love our neighbors as well. Let's pray. Uh, Very simply, let's make a decision today to reflect the grace, love, and generosity that we received and that we experienced when we met Jesus for the first time. If there are people that you need to forgive, let's do so. If there are people that you need to apologize to, let's do so. If there are recommitments that need to be made to God and to the church, let's do so. Let's live out the character of Christ together, and let's become a person. And together, collectively, let's become a ministry and a church where God loves to dwell. Let's pray. that you forgive us for all the mistakes that we made in the past for the ways that we've abused our brothers and sisters for the ways that we may have stumbled so many even within our church and father we know that there are so many outside this church that carry those scars that carry those wounds and father we pray that you bring those people back to you doesn't have to be FLM but bring them back to you God. And Father, especially for those who are in the church, we pray, God, make us a people that just want to reflect your character. Whatever we need to change, help us to change it. Enlighten us. Open up our eyes and our hearts to see the ways that we need to change so that we can become a people that absolutely experience you and just feel your presence and just operate in your ways. And Father, that we become a church and a collective like union that you love dwelling in that you just want to be a part of all the time. Help us to be your people. So God, um, we pray, renew us, restore us, and uh, help us not only take our relationship with you seriously, but to truly take our love for each other seriously as well. We need you, God, to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.